Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. So, Tracy, today we're going to talk about the Bauhaus. Yay! Uh, I do not mean the band that made Bella Lugosi's Dead. That make no mistake, I really love me some Peter Murphy. Uh, but the German art and design school of the early 1900s. And specifically, we are going to talk about the place of women there and some of the specific ladies who were part of the school's history. This has been a topic that has been requested many Many times via email and on social media. So thank you to everyone who asked for it. Um, I really want to establish some realistic expectations up front, though. This is really an overview. Uh, there has been so much scholarship on the Bauhaus that it could be the foundation of an entire podcast series on its own. So there's really no way we can cover everything in the scope of this episode. I mean, there were so many uh, pieces of art history and architecture history uh, and design and industrial design that have their roots there, that uh, there are so many details around the Bauhaus that we could talk about, but we really cannot do it all. So uh, how we're going to handle this is we're going to start with a little bit of the history of the school itself. And then we're going to talk a little about how women fit into that picture. And then we're going to cover the biographies of just a few of those women. There are far more than that. So I hope we do not leave out one that you are particularly partial to or interested in. But at the end, we will also talk about a great resource to go to if you want to learn more about these women. Uh, so that is the scoop. We're going to jump into our discussion of the Bauhaus and its women. The Bauhaus School was founded in 1919 by architect Walter Adolf Gropius, and the word Bauhaus translates to construction house or building school. When the school was established in Weimar, Germany, just as the Weimar Republic was established post-World War I, the goal was to incorporate arts into the real world by teaching art and functional design in tandem. As part of the launch of the school, Gropius wrote the Proclamation of the Bauhaus, which is a document that promoted the idea of a world where sculpture and painting and architecture all, are all united as one group of artists. And the curriculum of the Bauhaus, of course, was built entirely around this ideal. Students of the school all started in the same course, regardless of where their specific interests were focused. Basics of what was called the Bauhaus theory were taught in this course, including everything from color theory to material studies. And artists, including Vasily Kandinsky and Paul Klee, usually taught this comprehensive foundation course, which was called Vorkurs in German. Post-introduction, students would then move into their specialty fields of study, with the groundwork of that entry course forming the foundation for all of their study beyond that point. Subjects were off- that were offered included pottery, weaving, cabinet-making, metalwork, and typography. Uh, but quickly in the first few years of the school, it became apparent that to really be a practical study in line with Gropius's desire to integrate art into practical design, uh, the ideology of the school needed to be tweaked slightly. So the goal of the courses offered then shifted a bit to giving students the education they needed to take that union of art and functional design and then mass produce with it. So the school's slogan starting in 1923 became Art into Industry. Just a couple of years after that refocus into industrial production, the Bauhaus moved its location to Dessau, Germany in 1925. The new facility was designed by Walter Gropius, and that building, which is still standing, is sometimes cited as one of the earliest examples of modern architecture. 
It's asymmetrical, built using steel frame construction and large sheets of glass. And the interior layout was designed for the most efficient use of the space. And 1925 was also the year that Bauhaus first applied for corporate status. That was a move that intended to make the school itself both a place of learning and a more structured business entity that could produce the industrial designs that its students and faculty created. Just as the very buildings students learned in advanced the ideas of modern modern architecture, the various specialized workshops and courses often did the same in their fields. The textile workshop, which we're going to discuss at more length shortly, encouraged the use of non-standard materials and weaving, including metal and cellophane, which were really groundbreaking at the time, but are now pretty common in fabric production. The cabinet-making workshop got very experimental with furniture, eventually leading to the development of easily mass-produced metal chairs and other industrial furnishings. The metalworking workshop developed modern pieces such as lighting fixtures and tableware, all developed with a focus on usability and function. And the typography courses blended art and communication in a way that gave equal importance to being both graphically pleasing and precise. And though the influence of the Bauhaus is unarguable, the school itself really did not last very long. Gropius left in 1928, and another architect, Hannes Meyer, uh, stepped into the role of director. And Meyer changed the curriculum by cutting workshops that seemed too formalist to him, and he continued to advance the idea of design that could be thoughtful and artful and also mass-produced. After only two years, though, Meyer stepped down in 1930, replaced by yet another architect, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, who shifted the school's offering to be much more focused on architecture above all other crafts. That same year, the school moved to Berlin and was significantly reduced in scale due to financial issues. It only lasted three more years and shut down in 1933 as Germany's political climate became progressively more unstable. In January 1933, Hitler had been sworn in as chancellor, and when the Enabling Act of 1933 was passed in March of that year, it signaled the end of the Weimar Republic as it had existed. This could literally be a whole other episode on how the lives of the Bauhaus and the Weimar Republic ran in parallel, but it's, that's beyond the scope of our brief overview here. And after the Bauhaus was dissolved, many of its teachers moved to the United States, where they continued to share the school's design ideology with American students, which once again expanded the footprint of modernism. In 1996, the Bauhaus, including its locations at both Weimar and Dessau, was made a UNESCO World Heritage Site because of the school's far-reaching impact in design, architecture, art, and culture. So, like I said, very, very basic overview of the school. Uh, Again, we could do uh, many, many parts on Bauhaus. Uh, But we're going to talk now about the women that were there. Because when the Bauhaus first began, it actually had more women applicants than men. The proclamation of the Bauhaus, which you'll sometimes also see referred to as the Bauhaus Manifesto uh, in 1919, clearly stated that the school would welcome, quote, any person of good repute without regard to age or sex. And while Walter Gropius openly declared that there would be equality of the sexes at the school and women were certainly admitted, the reality was a great deal more complex. After taking the same initial course in Bauhaus theory as the men, the women of the school were strongly encouraged into exclusively the textile and ceramics workshops. 
Gropius is said to have believed that women thought in two dimensions, making them more natural students of textile design, whereas men could handle three-dimensional thinking and were encouraged to do the other available workshops. Of course, ladies were also encouraged into ceramics, which is definitely a three-dimensional medium. But because the idea that it was an art of surfaces rather than one of engineering, it still fit into this, frankly, bizarre and sexist assertion. <laughs> it It is one of those things that I'm like, when I first read it, which is some years ago, and I hadn't thought about it in a long time since until I was doing this research, I just had that moment of, what? <laughs> like, it, there's no way that theory holds up. Like, even if you think about, like, the many women that have worked in things like clothing and dressmaking, which is a very three-dimensional thing. You have to have a sense of how, like, things move in space. I'm like, there's no way you can support that with any sort of evidence. Even women who had experience as apprentices or interns, for example, at architecture firms, we're going to talk about one specific example in just a bit, uh, were shunted into the weaving shop. Uh, one of the probably unexpected outcomes of this corralling of the women's students into textile work was that the weaving workshop became very successful. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, there were some groundbreaking, ex- there was some groundbreaking experimentation going on with fiber work, but this workshop also became commercially successful, producing fabrics and textile art that remains both sought after and emblematic for the school and its avant-garde aesthetic. We're going to talk about three specific women who were part of the Bauhaus, but first we're going to take a brief break for a word from one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. We've talked about Holly and I both love Squarespace. We have each made Squarespace websites that we are really enjoying working on and very pleased with how they look. Yes, indeed. I just posted the blog post about making your wedding dress. That's true. I have been posting honeymoon (laughs) pictures. So it's awesome. Whether you are trying to make a landing page or a gallery or a blog or an online store, all of these things are possible with a Squarespace website. Squarespace is really easy. You have simple, intuitive processes. If there's something that you want to do and you're not sure how to do, there's lots of documentation about how to make things work. Like I was having a hard time figuring out exactly how to make my captions show up the way I wanted with my picture galleries. And I Googled that and there was the answer right in front of me in a very easy way. It was not actually hard. They also have a support team that will help you if you can't find the answer online through their site or if you just are looking at the answer online and can't quite intuit how it's going to play out. You also get a free custom domain if you sign up for a year, which I did. They have beautiful templates. You can get a site that looks exactly like you want. And if you are trying to do something more commercial, if you're selling things that you're making, selling things that you are taking pictures of, any of those things. There are really seamless commercial tools that you can use for that. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code HISTORY to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, set your website apart. So, picking up uh, with our ladies of the Bauhaus, we're first going to talk about Gunther Stolzl. And she was born in Munich in 1897. And her father was a teacher. Uh, he encouraged her creativity and her curiosity, which she exhibited from a very early age, as many children do. Uh, and at the age of 16, she began attending the Munich School of Arts and Crafts. And for three years, she studied there, learning about art history, ceramics, and painting. 
And during this time, she was really prolific as a sketch artist. She created hundreds of landscapes and portraits and architectural drawings. Because of World War One, there was a period where Stolzel left her studies at, and volunteered at the Red Cross as a nurse that went on from 1917 to 1918. But even while serving in this capacity, she never stopped drawing. She sketched throughout her time as a war nurse, and when the war came to an end, she went right back to the School of Arts and Crafts to continue her studies. In the fall of 1919, she began studying at the Bauhaus. And in the early summer of 1920, a new women's class, which was weaving, was established by the school, and Walter Gropius asked Gunther Stolzl to head it, which she agreed to. And as a consequence, Stolzl became both a leader and a champion for the weaving workshop. She always worked to incorporate new ideas and new techniques into classes. She wanted to make sure that the students always had proper facilities to incorporate those new ideas. For example, she set up the school's first dye facilities in 1922 after she had taken a course on dye techniques. Throughout the years that she was working and studying at the Bauhaus, she was also creating, and she was doing so in ways that sometimes could be quite lucrative. Her rugs were extremely popular, and one was sold at the Bauhaus exhibition in 1923. It's said to have inspired the buyer to build a room specifically for it. Her work during this time very clearly shows the influence of Clay and Kandinsky with the geometric shapes and bold colors woven into her designs. And you can actually almost trace the development of the Bauhaus from art and design collective to corporate entity by looking at the chronological development of Stolzl's work. While she started weaving, for the most part, pictorial art, she really did transition over time to more sort of, I'm reluctant to use the word traditional, but things that you would think about more as fabric designs that were primarily and importantly reproducible as textile designs. In 1925, Stolzl was made the craft master of the weaving workshop. At this point, she began really strongly guiding the curriculum in the workshop and established a well-organized training system for students. Because there weren't many technical guidelines for textile education of the type that was happening at the Bauhaus, she was able to incorporate a lot of experimentation into the curriculum for students and teachers alike. And Gunther Stolzl was later given the title of Young Master in 1925, and with it came the responsibility for the weaving workshop in its entirety. And it's under her leadership in this role that the workshop really became the most financially successful branch of the Bauhaus, with a consistent list of textile orders that kept the weavers there working pretty much constantly at full capacity. In 1929, Stolzl married Aria Sharon, and he was Jewish. By marrying a Jewish man, she forfeited her German citizenship. The couple had a daughter the same year. Political issues that were bubbling up as the Nazi party gained more and more power made Stolzl and Sharon increasingly targeted for harassment. In 1931, Stolzl was forced to resign her position at Bauhaus, and she moved to Switzerland. Her husband went back to his home country, and the couple divorced five years later. After Bauhaus, Stolzl's career as a fiber artist was fairly successful. Uh, she didn't make a ton of money, but she continued to work. She initially co-founded a fabric company with two other Bauhaus alums, Gertrude Prieswerk and Heinrich Otto Herlemann, through, uh, although their company struggled, even though its upholstery and curtain textiles were really highly regarded. Stolzl went on to contribute fabrics to theatrical design. She exhibited her work as a member of the Association of Swiss Women Painters, Sculptors, and Craftswomen. And she eventually set up her own workshop, the Flora Handweaving Mill. 
She remarried in 1942 to journalist Willie Stadler, and at that point she became a Swiss citizen. Prior to that, even though she had been living in Switzerland for a while, her she was sort of in a precarious position. Uh, and the following year, 1943, she had a daughter with Stadler. Her works from her Bauhaus years were often featured in exhibitions about the school, and in 1976, the Bauhaus archive staged a solo exhibition of her work. Gunter Stolzl died in Zurich in 1983. And next up, we are going to talk about another woman from the Bauhaus whose story takes a pretty sad turn. She interweaves a little bit with Gunter Stolzl. So we're talking about Audie Berger. And she was born in the area of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that is now modern-day Croatia in 1898. She was considered a Yugoslavian citizen. And she attended the Collegiate School for Girls in Vienna before moving on to the Royal Academy of Arts and Artistic Crafts in Zagreb in 1922. She finished her studies in Zagreb in 1926 and moved on to the Bauhaus in 1927. And after finishing the Vorkurs, that's that foundation course, she moved on to the textile workshop where she met Gunther Stolzl. When Stoltel left Bauhaus, she recommended Berger as her successor, and Berger did take over the management of the textile program, but she was never officially named as the leader of the department. And when Ludwig Mies van der Rohe appointed a new head to the workshop in 1932, it was not Berger, but Lily Reich who got the position. Berger stayed on for a short while as Reich's assistant. And Berger, who really is considered one of the most gifted artists to have ever been part of the weaving workshop at Bauhaus, took on a mentor role to other students, and she developed her own curriculum around textile work. When she left the Bauhaus later in 1932, Berger took her extensive knowledge and skill to Berlin, where she opened her own workshop, Atelier for Textile. Berger was skilled at creating textured fabrics that used color to accentuate shifts in the weave. And she had an innovative approach to textile production, including the incorporation of plastics and synthetic dyes that helped her create successful business partnerships with several textile companies. And her business was doing quite well until 1936. But because her family was Jewish, Berger was banned uh, at that point from working in Germany. She had to shutter her company, and she began trying to get a visa to travel to the U.S. to join several of her friends and mentors from the Bauhaus. She had, in fact, been offered a job in Chicago by Bauhaus professor Laszlo Moholy-Naiji, who was starting a new Bauhaus in the United States. Berger waited on her visa and in the meantime traveled to London several times to seek work, but she didn't do very well there. She didn't have any connections to help her, and she didn't speak English, so to most Londoners, she was considered German. In 1938, she traveled back to Yugoslavia to visit her mother, who was sick, and she wasn't able to leave. She and her family were sent to the Auschwitz concentration camp in 1944, where she died. So our next uh, woman from Bauhaus that we're going to talk about is Gertrude Arndt, and she was born Gertrude Honschk. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, bear with me, uh, in Upper Silesia in 1903. And since she's best known by her married name, that's actually how we're going to refer to her even at times prior to her marriage, just FYI. So unlike many of the other women who made their way into the Bauhaus school, Arndt was intent on becoming an architect. She apprenticed with the Karl Meinhardt architecture firm in Erfurt, Germany from 1919 to 1922. So she was at that architecture firm for three years. And during that time, she also became interested in photography. And that was because her employer suggested that she should document the architecture of the city with her camera. During her time at the firm, she also studied other branches of design, including typography, drawing and art history. 
After she saw the 1923 Bauhaus exhibition, that is the very one where Gunther Stolzl's rug work was so successful, Arndt, who had a student grant at this point, decided to use it to attend the school of Bauhaus to study architecture. But remember, this was a time prior to the Bauhaus establishing architecture as a formal course of study on its own. This meant that Arndt was, you guessed it, ushered toward the weaving workshop after she completed the foundation course. Despite her architectural background, Arndt dutifully worked in textiles, culminating in an apprenticeship project with the Glaukau Weavers Guild. And then she graduated, married fellow student Alfred Arndt, and never worked in textiles again. <laughs> yeah, I love that she was apparently quite good. She did great in her coursework, but was like, that's a wrap. Uh, <laughs> instead, <laughs> instead, uh, the newlyweds moved to eastern Germany. And while they were there, Alfred worked in an architecture firm, and Gertrude worked there as a photographer. She documented buildings for that same firm, just as she had done as an apprentice prior to her time at the Bauhaus. But after only two years, the Arnts moved back to Dessau and back to Bauhaus. That was 1929. And they did that because Alfred had been appointed as a teacher at the school. They didn't stay long, though. In 1930, the couple had their first child, a son, and the following year they had a daughter. Throughout this time, Gertrude was still taking pictures, including a series of self-portraits, 43 of them entitled Mask Portraits. In 1932, Gertrude, Alfred, and their two children moved back to East Germany. They lived in Probstella until 1948, and then they moved to Darmstadt. While she didn't continue her photography pursuits for long after that point, Gertrude lived there for the rest of her life, which was quite long. She died in 2000 at the age of 97. And in January of 2013, the Bauhaus Archive mounted an exhibition of Gertrude's work that showcased her textile work as a student right alongside her extensive photography work. While these are only three of the women who came from the Bauhaus school, there were so, so many others. And unfortunately, most of them go largely unknown, although that is starting to change. And if you want to learn more, and I mean loads more with a lot more specifics and details about the women of Bauhaus, there is a wonderful monograph titled Bauhaus Women, Art, Handicraft, Design that was published to coincide with a Museum of Modern Art exhibit in 2010. And that book focuses on 20 of the female artists who were part of the school's important, though brief, history. And it's a very high likelihood that there will be an episode or two in the future about specific artists from Bauhaus that we have not mentioned here today. So stay tuned. In 2013, the Bauhaus Archive in Berlin hosted a series of exhibitions under the banner of Female Bauhaus in an effort to try and finally bring some recognition to the women who studied at the school and continued to work in art and design, uh, which is awesome. I was talking to Holly before we started recording about how um, in our sort of division of labor for the more administrative tasks for the podcast, I'm usually the person that gets artwork. Uh, and I could not find any picture of anything about by any of the women we were talking about. So Holly now is going to employ some some secret connections to try to help us out with that. That's uh, definitely atypical in terms of when we talk about um, artists and, and designers and, and dancers and people who had some kind of visual career that was documented in some way. We usually don't have a, a big problem finding pictures of their work. But that was not the case when I was looking for pictures today. Yeah, you can find some if you go looking online, but in terms of pictures that are usable, like from um, places like Getty or other photography sites that provide uh, like journalism photos, you really don't find many. And it's fascinating because, I mean, truly, particularly in textile arts, a lot of the work these women did 
is still really vital and being used, whether people realize it or not, in the textile industry today. Uh, so it is sort of fascinating. You can hear people talk about some of the men, particularly the architects and painters like Kandinsky and Clay, who were part of Bauhaus, but you very rarely hear the women referenced. So uh, important, fascinating. They all have really interesting stories of their own. So uh, hopefully we can continue to shed a little more light on that. Do you also have some listener mail? I do, and it combines two topics that we've talked about, which sound gross together, but, uh, you know, it works. They're separated out. We're going to talk about knitting and pizza. <laughs> and this is from our listener, Clara. And she says, hi, Holly and Tracy. I am a huge fan of the podcast. You two and previous hosts have kept my brain from melting as I build CAD models for eight hours a day. I'm in the middle of listening to your live show on pizza, and I had to tell you, as someone who was born and grew up in Boulder, Colorado, I did not realize until you mentioned it that dipping the crust in honey as a dessert was a local thing. When I was little, I used to obsessively eat off all of the little bits that still had sauce on them before putting far too much honey on my crust. What who the heck let a six-year-old wield the honey bottle? In recent years, I've become less fastidious and find that a bit of tomato sauce zing on the honey crust is quite tasty. Now living in Rhode Island, I've enjoyed a wide array of new pizza styles, but I miss the whole wheat crust. Uh, I also wanted to thank you for the episode on knitting a few weeks back. Knitting is an obsession I have in common with my partner, many people in my family, and also many people in her family. It keeps us better in touch, and it's fun to see how we each tackle knitting puzzles differently. I'd like to speak a little bit about the online knitting community, as I feel that it will one day be recognized as historically significant. Maybe you already know this stuff, but here it goes. Gone are the days days of guilds and trade secrets. Instead, online knitting communities, specifically Ravelry, have developed a collaborative and mutually beneficial network between hobbyists and artisans. Each project page encourages referencing the pattern yarns used to create each knitted piece, which is useful for future knitters, while also acting as free, earnest advertising for the reference pattern designer yarn producer. It fosters respect for the inherently collaborative nature of the craft, while also respecting the significance of individual creativity and labor. We're all knitting on the shoulders of warmly dressed giants. Other artist networks, hobbyist and professional, could learn a lot from the knitting communities of the world. Of the online communities I rely on in my practice as a designer, the knitting community is the most sophisticated and accessible. Ten years from now, app and web designers will hold up Ravelry as their inspiration. Perhaps they already are now. Uh, she has also learned how to now bend and to increase her knitting speed by studying historical fibercraft blogs. She's currently learning a medieval flax spinning technique and making her own distaff. Uh, there's, she mentions also that there's just a ton of generously free info for people like videos online for people that learn visually. Uh, and it's great. Uh, thank you so much, Clara. I think that's an interesting thing to point out. I used to work for an online fabric company and Ravelry was uh, an area that we kind of worked in and had feelers in. Uh, and it's true. It's not one because I'm not an avid knitter. I wasn't super involved in that part of it. But I, I was always kind of impressed when we would have meetings and talk about how Ravelry was going, like how much sort of open sharing and not if anybody has ever been part of a creative community online, you know that sometimes things can get a little tense. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, rivalries can develop people. Well, t- I mean, it happens in any community online. I don't want to just say that it's creative communities, but those are the ones that I've been the most exposed to. But that, that seems to be less the case with Ravelry in my limited experience. I'm sure people have um, examples where that would prove otherwise. But uh, it is very interesting. I think uh, one of the interesting things about 
sort of the the burst of the internet since I do remember a time before everyone was online is that it has created this sort of strange wonderful world where people doing very old world crafts and hobbies can actually come together in a new way and share information. Yeah, we love. we got several notes slash suggestions that we start a Stuff You Missed in History class Ravelry group after uh, our episode on knitting. Uh, and I think I would like to say we have no objections to the existence <laughs> of a Stuff You Missed in History class like fan group. Uh, but I don't think either you or I has the the number one current yarn craft uh, no. enthusiasm or the time <laughs> no. uh, to head that up. But, you know, if we, we would have no objections whatsoever to folks collectively forming their own uh, fan group. I yeah, would be delighted w- to see that. I would literally be useless. I would just be like, neat. Like, I wouldn't have anything really of value to offer. Yeah. <laughs> I would I would intend to offer something and never get to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Un- unrelated to any of that, I was in Iceland and there was a, a yarn aisle that was literally half, it was one whole side of the aisle at a 24 hour grocery store. I love it. Um, and, and I had a moment where I regretted not buying myself t- some yarn to then knit something with when I got home and say, this is the thing I knitted with the yarn that came from a 24 hour Icelandic grocery store. <laughs> But I know, realistically, what really would have happened is that yarn would have come home and then sat in the yarn drawer. Yeah, in a, ba- in a plastic bag somewhere where you discover yep. it in another eight years and go, oh, man, I forgot to do anything with this. Yep. That never happens to me. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I didn't give you a literal, like, giant tote of fabric when I moved to Boston. And that didn't Yes, happen. but some of that's actually gotten used. So. Yay. <laughs> Okay. If you would like to write to us and share your stories about knitting or pizza or anything you like, you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also at Facebook.com slash Missed in History, on Twitter at Missed in History, at Pinterest.com slash Missed in History, at Missed in History.tumblr.com, and on Instagram at Missed in History. Uh, you can visit our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks, where you can search for Almost anything your heart desires, and you're going to turn up some interesting articles. You can visit us online at mistinhistory.com, where we have an archive of every episode ever of all time, as well as show notes for any of the episodes that feature Tracy and me. And uh, we encourage you to come and visit us at houseofworks.com and mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 